0: This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to your podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. New episodes are uploaded every Thursday, just in time for a nice, relaxing weekend of listening. So make sure you subscribe to get them all. But today there's no time to relax, as we're working hard to bring in the harvest. Historically speaking, that is. To understand how this was done at two particular English heritage properties in different time periods, we're joined by Curator of Collections and Interiors, Eleanor Matthews. Hello. And Properties Curator, Wynne Scott. Hello. Eleanor is on hand to tell us about harvest time at Broadsworth Hall in South Yorkshire, And Wynne will be telling us about life on the farm at Lycourt Barn, which is one of Britain's oldest and largest timber-framed barns, which is in Worcestershire. So if we can start with you, Eleanor, where is Brodsworth Hall and who built it?
1: So Brodsworth is just north of Doncaster in South Yorkshire, and it was built by the architect Philip Wilkinson for a man called Charles Sabine Augustus Tellerson and his family.
0: And can you describe what the Victorian hall looks like and how it appears in the landscape.
1: Yeah, it's a beautiful, large Victorian country house, an Italianate design built roughly in the shape of a letter T. So it has the family wing and then the servant's wing is the stem of the T made of limestone and it's surrounded by about 16 acres of really beautiful formal gardens and then surrounding the gardens when the hall was built the estate the Broadsworth estate was around 9,000 acres in size so quite large and with agricultural land farming land villages arable pasture and woodland so a typical country house estate in South Yorkshire.
0: And it's worth saying as well that this replaced a previous hall that was on the site back in the Georgian period is that right?
1: Yes. So when Charles Tellison rebuilt Broadsworth, he decided to knock down the old hall, which was in a different part of the gardens, and then rebuild and have built the hall that we know and that people can visit today.
0: So speaking about the farming side of things, was agriculture the main focus of the estate?
1: It was. It was an agricultural farming estate. Um, The family, as part of their leisure activities, particularly enjoyed shooting. So many of the woods and the woodlands were developed for shooting game for their interests over the winter. However, the majority of this state yet was agricultural. So the land was farmed by tenant farmers and they employed their own labourers and buildings were provided by the estate. The home farm, the farm that was closest to the hall, was managed in hand and that actually supplied Broadsworth Hall and the family with produce. And other new farms were developed when the hall um, was built. New farms were designed to efficiently accommodate animals, machinery, different farming activities. But agriculture was the main employer in the countryside in surrounding Broadsworth and the surrounding areas, and the main source of income um, for Tellison and for landowners.
0: As we look at the change of the seasons, what do we know about harvest time on the Broadsworth estate?
1: Well, we know quite a lot about harvest across the last century in particular and that mainly comes from the stories and the memories of different people who worked on the estate in the past so farmers farmhands villagers who remember farming in particularly from the 1930s onwards And many of these stories are recorded in our oral history collection, which is a brilliant resource that we have to share the stories about the history of the state with visitors. And we can and we do find kind of information from facts and figures from earlier times by looking at historical records. But it's really what the people can tell us who actually have lived at Brodsworth throughout the last 60, 70, 80 years. And it's their memories that really bring it to life, what it was like working on the estate in the 20th century. So it's that's what we know kind of most about and can bring in the real understanding of what it was like for the people.
0: Yes, absolutely. And we'll be hearing some of those voices uh, during this episode. Let's talk through some of those stories. So tell us some of the memories that people have told you about harvest time on the Broadsworth estate. I mean, was it hard work?
1: Yes, it definitely was very hard work, particularly for the farm labourers. So we know a farm labourer called Barry Hudson who worked on the home farm on the estate and he's spoken to us many times. And Barry started working on the home farm when he was 13 on weekends and then was later employed there for about six years. And he started at seven o'clock in the morning during harvest time often finishing as late as 11 o'clock at night to get everything done that was needed to be done. And his jobs included haymaking when it was the potato harvest, potato picking, feeding cattle, hoeing. And he said it was really backbreaking work. Although the workers were well fed and watered and the farmer's wife at the time would bring them out very thick meat sandwiches and lots of pots of tea throughout the day to keep them going as sustenance. And before mechanical help was introduced obviously everything was done by hand with the help of horses and um, horses would pull some of the machinery around and a lady called joyce Durdy, who grew up on hilltop farm another farm on the estate she remembers that after the threshing time when all the corn was bagged up and carried into the stores onto the farm and these were huge sacks of corn really heavy and the men carried them up really steep stone steps with no handrails or anything like that that health and safety nowadays we would expect her to have to keep workers safe and she said most of the men and the farm workers ended up with bad backs later in life from the strain of doing all the manual labour. So certainly not an easy life at all, I'd say.
0: I can imagine. Um, how many tenant farmers were there then on this estate?
1: Well, there were quite a few farms on the estate at the time. I think there were over 20 farms on the estate in Broadsworth and Pickburn, but also on the surrounding villages that the estate encompassed. In the 1930s, there were over 20, and just the ones in more closer to us in Broadsworth and Pickburn included Elm Farm, Gleave Farm, Hilltop Farm, Home Farm, Rathall Farm, and Windy Mount Farm, and they would have all had their farmers, and they would have also had, depending on the time of season, two, three, four, five, six more farm labourers working for them, because when busy times appeared like a harvest, they would have employed extra farm hands from the surrounding villages. And also workers would have come from different farms to help each other out, depending on who had more or less crops to deal with. So it's hard to say an exact number, but agriculture was the main employer in the countryside at that time. So there was certainly a lot.
0: And with all these workers doing all this work at harvest time and all that very tiring work, how did they relax after a heavy day's harvesting?
1: well they certainly needed to relax i certainly would have done and it was very thirsty work for them although they had lots of kind of tea and refreshments brought to them throughout the day they did want to relax and have a have a nice time on an evening and we know that at one point there was a licensed village club opened up in the village old Nether house which is now demolished but it was in the grounds of what was the new vicarage and this village club was actually run by the local vicar a man called canon Ewans. and it was open over the weekend fridays to mondays in particular and the farm workers, including Barry Hudson, who we mentioned earlier, they would go there on an evening if they finished slightly earlier than the very later finish. And they would go for a drink, they would play snooker, play darts, and they would wind down there before heading home. And that would be lots of different farmers and farm labourers from the area coming in and, and joining together. And sometimes the farmers, for example, Mr. Stanley, who was at Home Farm, he would go and pay for the drinks for all of the labourers who worked on his farm. And he was considered a really good employer.
0: Ah, yes, well, I think I'd want to work for him as well <laughs> after a sweaty day's work. So, what happened to all the produce that was harvested? Was it sold locally or?
1: Well, some of it was used in house in the farms to kind of continue and provide fodder for cattle and for other animals and things like that. But obviously, harvest time was important to make money and profit and bring income onto the estate. So once the physical labor was actually done, the corn would be sold off in the corn market. So farmers and corn agents would take a sample of the corn to the corn exchange, We've got a big corn exchange in Doncaster to sell to the corn merchants. And if it was of good quality and was what the merchants wanted, then it would be ordered. And then the farmers would get Those orders sent off from the farms to wherever it was needed. And the corn exchange in Doncaster still exists. It's a beautiful building in the centre of town, built in the Victorian period in the 1870s, so about 10 years or so after Broadsworth Hall was built. And it's filled with light from the glazed ceiling and was also, as well as being used as a corn exchange, was also used to host concerts at the time. So it's a beautiful building for business and for pleasure.
0: Yes, and there are lots of these halls with the same name dotted around the country, aren't there, effectively?
1: Yeah, there's corn exchanges throughout the country being a rural, a largely rural nation with lots of agricultural land, yeah.
0: Would they have had other crops that they brought as samples to the merchants there, like maize or wheat as well?
1: The farms, predominantly for Doncaster, because it was the corn exchange, it would have been corn. And if they had other products to sell, they would have brought small samples of that as well. But it would have been mainly corn, although the farmers did grow other produce as well as needed.
0: We've heard, of course, in a previous podcast that Brodsworth was occupied during the Second World War. And you explained some of the stories from that period. How did the uh, war years affect the harvest at Brodsworth?
1: Well, the Second World War did certainly affect the harvest. Farming was made a reserved occupation to help prevent food shortages. And farmers and farm labourers were exempt from military service. At the start of the Second World War, quite a few tens of thousands of farm labourers across the country had signed up. So it was made a reserved occupation to help prevent food shortages in future. And during the wartime, the farm workers received extra rations for harvest threshing and because it was such tiring work for them to do. And normally at Broadsworth, certainly, this was given to the farmer's wives who had to weigh out the portions for the men as the workers had a set amount to last them for the period they were working in. And Broadsworth, um, as we know, was occupied by various divisions throughout the Second World War. And one of the men, Walter Nichols, who was a signaller with one corps and was based on the estate. And he was stationed near the stable block, although he worked within the hall in one of the rooms there, even though he was a soldier, helped out with the harvest as well, along with other soldiers. And they helped out on the home farm. And we know from the memories of his family that he, alongside other soldiers, used to go stooking and building stooks together. And this is where sheaves of grain are stored up on their ends in a field. So arranging the sheaves of corn to make sure that the grain heads are kept off the ground and against spoiling and and pests and things like that. And the soldiers used to follow the farm machinery around, pulled by horses until mechanisation and more mechanised tractors were introduced. And they used to follow them around to stack the sheaves of corn into the stooks. And it really, it made a lot of sense that if there was manpower readily available, and the harvest needed bringing in to use any help that was there, really.
0: Did they get help from prisoners of war and this sort of thing as well?
1: Yeah, it wasn't just soldiers and extra farmhands. We know that during the Second World War, prisoners of war worked on the farms on the estate around and about. For example, they worked on Margrange Farm, which was a farm not strictly on the Brodsworth estate, it was adjoining it. But we have some oral history memories from a lady whose father was the tenant farmer there. And they had prisoners of war from Italy and from Germany, who were based nearby Hickleton. And they came along during harvest on threshing days, but also helped with the potato harvest. And the prisoners were dropped off at the farm and collected later on in the day. And the farmers would get to know some of them quite well, I think, depending on how talkative or how much they they would interact with them. And we know that one of the German prisoners of wars who was on Margrange Farm, a man called Otto, he actually met and married a local girl from nearby Thernsko, a nearby village. And they stayed in the area for a while before moving elsewhere. So that's quite a nice story.
0: Interesting how a local girl sort of found love with the enemy in a way. Mm -hmm. And I gather that the Germans were described by one farmer as quite efficient workers. You know, the stereotypes <laughs> seem to play out, don't they? Whilst I believe the Italians were a bit more laissez faire, shall yes,
1: we say? One, yes, yeah, one of the farmers described the Germans as being very efficient and very hard workers, and the Italian prisoners of war less so, but they made very good coffee. I'm not sure how much opportunity the Italian prisoners of war would have had chance to make coffee whilst working on the farm, but, but that's what we have. And that's why the oral history collection is really nice because it brings in some of those quirky stories that otherwise we just wouldn't find out.
0: Were there any other groups of people who helped out? I mean, there was that film several years back now, The Land Girls. Was that a group who you could call upon to help with Harvest?
1: Yes, quite a lot of farms had women working on them in the Second World War and later into the 1950s, um, particularly for things like the potato harvest. And the land army were and the land girls were involved at Broadsworth and took on all different aspects of farm work. There were some official surveys of Broadsworth farms in 1941 and 1942, and they showed that there was a distinct shortage of labour and led to the land girls and the prisoners of war being employed And people kind of met up and we have some nice stories from the land girls as well. So a man called Frank Wilson, who worked as a foreman and later a manager at Billam Grange Farm on the estate, he met his future wife Muriel because Frank went to train women and advise the future land army on ploughing. In north yorkshire and during the training sessions the land girls were partnered with more experienced farmhands to learn about plowing and harvesting to help the war effort and muriel remembers that it was really busy particularly when they were learning how to harvest and how to drill seeds where the trainers were on the machines at the back and the land girls were driving the tractors and she actually didn't like frank at first and tossed a coin with a friend to see who would be partnered with frank as she couldn't understand his strong barnsley accent but she lost the coin toss and she was partnered with frank and they were paired up and they eventually married in 1945 and came to live at Brodsworth.
0: <laughs> and hopefully she could understand his Barnsley accent uh, oh, yeah, by I the time so. they were doing their marriage vows. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there were other groups as well. Other groups of men, weren't there, who helped out in, in harvest time in World War II?
1: Yes. So Broadsworth is in an area of, well, industrial area, particularly of collieries, and coal mines. And the farms on the estate used to get quite a few miners from the pit villages coming and helping out, particularly for potato harvest. And one person we spoke to recalls that often the miners are more interested in spending time in the fresh air working compared to what they've done down the mines. And you can't really blame them for that, really. But there'd also be the opportunity of picking up maybe some eggs or some potatoes for roasting, or something like that, rather than getting money for the harvesting. So sometimes they were given produce in lieu of payment.
0: And that's great if you can have a bumper harvest, but were there periods of bad harvest at Broadsworth?
1: Yes, there were. As we know, and we know nowadays, everything was particularly affected by the climate and the weather. And ever since the present hall was built, farming suffered from imports of foreign produce as competitors, and bad harvests, poor weather, economic and agricultural depression. And Broadsworth also had cattle plague at one time. And the estate sometimes struggled to find tenants for the farms as well and had to reduce rents. And we know that in the early part of the 20th century, for example, in 1903, When it was a really bad season, um, some of the local farmers banded together to request from the owner, Mr. Tellison at the time, to have a return on a half year's rent in consequence of the bad season they had all experienced. So all the farmers banded together to say, we've had a bad season. Can we have our reduction in our rent? So there were definitely ups and downs and periods of good harvest and bad harvest, which affected the whole area.
0: Well, I think it's just part of nature, isn't it, really? Some years are good, some not so good. I mean, we've just had a very hot summer, haven't we? So Mm -hmm. perhaps we're in for a very wet or even snowy winter. Who knows? But um, back to, obviously, the late summer period. What would you say were the main changes to the harvests, particularly after the war, the wartime period of uh, 1939 to forty five?
1: Well, after the war, farming did become more productive, particularly due to mechanisation and the introduction of machines and more labour-saving devices, so tractors, combine harvesters, rather than using horses, although we know that some of the villagers really missed hearing the sounds of horses coming down the street at dusk after late-night harvest time. For example, we know of a man called Maurice Richardson, and he used to work at Glebe Farm for about 10 years, and the farmer at Glebe Farm, Cliff Roberts, who was Morris's uncle, he was a supporter of mechanisation, and quite early on recognised its advantages. And we know that in 1948, he bought a Fordson tractor to take the workload off the two white shire horses they had at Glebe Farm, who were called Bonnie and Blossom. And this, Morris tells us, also extended the harvest and made it much more easier for the farmers to work in because Cliff Roberts, the farmer, also bought the first self-propelled combine harvester in the village. So the other farmers um, had smaller combines that they pulled around with tractors. But this was the first time a combine harvester, which didn't need a tractor, came to Broadsworth. So some of the farmers really embraced mechanisation. And one of the great things about our oral history collection is being able to hear the stories about life on the farms. So we can hear from one of them. So we've got a clip from a man called Derek Walker, who was a 14-year-old used to drive a tractor to help bring in the corn harvest, and he talks a lot about the help that new machinery brought to the farms.
2: When we went out in the fields to bring in the corn harvest, they used to let me drive the tractor, while one man on the tray, one man throwing the stooks, the sheaves up. I was driving, so it saved them a month. I didn't get paid for that, I did it. Truly for my pleasure, their convenience. That was when I was sort of 14, 15. I think mechanisation was really coming to the fore. You know, the Shire horses were being retired, tractors were the norm. So instead of having a, a Shire horse or two Shire horses pulling a plough that was perhaps doing two furrows, you got a tractor with a gadget at the back that was doing four times that.
0: Following on from that Eleanor we've got another clip to play and this is from Jeff Morell, who's a tenant farmer and he talks about what he considers the biggest change in farming post-war.
2: And you would not believe what changed it. You wouldn't believe it and it was quite simply rubber tires. After the war there was an awful lot of army stuff getting and all army stuff was of 916 rubber tires and everything you can imagine on farms by the likes of me that's a bit handy with them, converted trailers, ploughs, everything to rubber tires. Now then, what that did, when I say it changed farming, enormous change it made. It meant that my father, if he wanted, could take a farm 10-15 mile away and farm it with the same machinery. Because the tractor, although it wasn't as fast as modern tractors, would still do about ten, twelve miles an hour. And that tractor could yuck on the plough, cultivate or whatever, that was now on these rubber tyres. And his tractor on rubber tyres instead of them spade lugs. Mm. And off they went to other farm. Previous to that, he couldn't do it because it would have taken the arse two hours to get it there. By the time he got there, it was time to come back again.
0: So once all the harvest has been brought in by the various different groups of people, whether they're miners or POWs or land army girls, land girls, you know, even young boys who of age 13 mm-hmm. and up potentially, how is this all celebrated? You you mentioned a pub earlier, but uh, were there sort of festivals?
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah, so at the start of the agricultural year, we know the church at Brodsworth and other churches around the country had or hold what's called a Plough Sunday service, which celebrates the start of the agricultural year where the land's blessed and which often includes the blessing of an actual plough brought nearby to the church and the churchyards. And then effectively the opposite end of the agricultural calendar is, and I'm sure we've all attended lots of them, harvest festivals, and Broadsworth was no exception. They held harvest festivals each year, to celebrate the harvest, be thankful for the crops, the growth of the crops and the bounty, and it was also really a chance for the rural community to get together and to meet and to chat and to catch up and and see what what news there is we know that a harvest queen would be crowned at the village school and lots of elaborate displays of wheat and flowers would decorate the inside of the church um, and that still continues today and as well as the church we know that there were harvest festivals in the local methodist chapel which has now been demolished and they held singing services and they had fruit displayed everywhere lots of sheaves of corn on display and we know from one of the daughters of a manager of Ashfield Farm, a lady called Audrey Edwards, she remembers when she was a schoolgirl going to the Methodist church during the Harvest Festivals, she and her friends used to pinch grapes and apples off the displays and have a secret feast behind the building. <laughs>
0: <laughs> if we turn our, our attention to Brodsworth Hall itself, I gather that there are some... Nice visual reminders for visitors of the estate's farming history, if you are looking carefully. Could you give us a few examples that people might see if they're walking around the house?
1: Yes, um, there's various historic objects within the collection and on display that have links with harvest and kind of reference the agricultural nature of the estate. For example, there's an early 17th century set of paintings showing the four seasons and the one which depicts autumn shows a grape harvest. Another later painting from the 19th century by a man called William Perry, it shows a girl and some companions picking blackberries and scattering flowers around. And of course, blackberrying is a very traditional autumn activity during the harvest time. Brodsworth is also noted for its sculpture collection. And we've got some sculptures feature harvest themes. One's a figure of Sarah's, who is the goddess of agriculture and the harvest, um, which would be really appropriate for the nature of Brodsworth. And our sculpture is a Victorian copy of an ancient statue, which is probably a late Greek original, which is known as the Vatican Serres. And the other statue we've got, there's a marble figure of the young boy inside the hall and he represents autumn. And he's holding a basket of autumnal fruit. He's holding a bunch of grapes um, with the other hand. And he has a counterpart standing opposite him who represents summer. So so there's lots of clues to spot in the objects when you visit the hall that link to harvest and link to autumn. Whether that was a deliberate choice by the owners, we don't know, but certainly there's lots of interesting things to look at when you come around.
0: So what's happened to Brodsworth's farm buildings today? Do we still have farming going on around the hall?
1: Yeah, the estate is smaller than it used to be. So originally it was about 9,000 acres, but now is roughly about 4,000 acres. So it's still quite a large um, agricultural estate. And land has been sold for housing in nearby larger villages, for example, the main A1 motorway cuts through part of where the estate was, and various farm buildings have either been sold or have been converted to residential use or developed for a different variety of businesses. So it's really, I suppose, responded to the changing needs of the area. Um, However, it's very much still an active farming estate and one which really continues to adapt to the changing circumstances of, of the 21st century that we're in. And visitors, as they drive around outside kind of English heritages, gardens and hall, and in the local areas, will certainly see farmers going about their business, particularly at the moment with the harvest that started, I think, slightly earlier this year.
0: And we'll talk about uh, harvest at another location now as we bring in scuts We're moving now from a country house with a working farm to a missing manor, but a surviving barn, which rhymes quite nicely, uh, we're going to talk about Lycourt Barn in Worcestershire. Yes, indeed, it's a fantastic place, and uh, it's spelt
3: Lee. But we have to get into the yes. <laughs> happy to the pronunciation of lie, which is a bit confusing. Isn't exactly. It? <laughs> yes, it's it's
0: it's written L E I G H, which most people would interpret as Lee, but as you say, pronounced yeah. lie, and it's a remarkable agricultural and architectural survival from the Middle Ages.
3: Yeah, it's fantastic. It's six miles uh, west of Worcester in deep, beautiful countryside. And it's the only surviving building of a medieval manor there. But it is colossal. It has a massive steep tiled roof, which rises over 10 metres above your head. It's like a wall, you know, when you first confront it. To someone in the medieval period, it must have been one of the biggest buildings they'd ever seen, with the exception, of course, of castles and cathedrals, and it's certainly bigger than most churches. And in the sort of this massive tiled roof that faces you, there are two great barn doors with gabled roofs that project from the front. And once you step inside, you're kind of awestruck, really, by the magnificence of it it feels like a cathedral when you st- uh, step inside and these beautiful massive oak frames that rise above you it's called a cruck construction and i can sp- explain that in a moment but um, these great big oak curving trusses rise to an apex in the roof and below you in the floor is rammed earth apart from where the threshing floor is which is uh, which is flagstones so um, I hope that gives a, a bit of an impression of what it's like stepping into a, what you might call an agricultural cathedral. Yes.
0: Does it have windows then? <laughs> no, no windows at
3: all. No, it's, uh, it's uh, darkish inside. They're just the light from the doors. Okay. But so um, important to have a dry space for the, for the harvest. And weatherproof,
0: yes. Indeed. <laughs> exactly. So when and why was this barn built? We've teased the listeners by saying that it's, there's a missing manor. So, uh, what's going on there?
3: <laughs> well, the manor is significantly earlier. In fact, it, uh, well, it belonged to Pershore Abbey, uh, which is an Anglo-Saxon foundation, about 15 miles to the east, on uh, the other side of Worcester. But um, various buildings constructed in the medieval period, but all now destroyed apart from the barn. In 2006, English Heritage actually tried to date the building using dendrochronology, you know, tree ring dating. And they found the felling date for the earliest timber was 1344. So that means that it's built either then, or maybe the, the wood was allowed to mature a little, to dry up before they built it. So sometime after 1344, which was quite a surprise at the time, because people thought it was a little bit older. So we've got a date for it. The Manor of Lee is actually mentioned back in Doomsday, and as I say, belonged to Pershore Abbey, it was very high status, actually. But well, That's indicated by the fact that it was sometimes used as the residence of the abbot. Not to be confused, by the way, with tithe barns. You know, we often think of medieval tithe barns, which are enormous barns used to store a tithe from the community as a kind of tax. But this is not a tithe barn. This is a grange barn. So the granges were farms that were run by the monastery, and basically supplied them with all all the food and uh, and everything they needed. So this was directly owned by, as a Grange, by the monastery at uh, Pershore Abbey.
0: Right, so they were self-sustaining and able to sell, presumably, the crops that they produced and stored Indeed, there?
3: Indeed, and gi- give arms to the poor and everything. So it was a kind of social system at the time, you know, um, As you know, they owned vast amounts of the country, which is what Henry VIII brought him to do the Reformation and confiscate all these lands from the great monastic estates. But um, they owned incredible areas of land. But there was a kind of redistributive economy, but it also made these abbeys extremely rich. And Pershore Abbey was one of the richest in the country,
0: even richer than Worcester. Mm. If it dates back to around 1344 or afterwards, who was on the throne at the time that it might have been built? It was Edward III.
3: Uh, he was uh, 32, I suppose, at the time. He had a very long reign, you know, one of the longest reigns of early monarchs, uh, not as long as Queen Victoria or our present Queen, of course, but uh, 1327 to 1377, 50 years he was on the throne. So,
0: And it's amazing that it survived until the present day, because, yeah. as you've mentioned, we had the dissolution of the monasteries by Henry VIII. Presumably, the barn survived because they still needed a barn to um, store food. Effectively,
3: yeah, a lot of it is to do with luck. I think that it didn't catch fire because there were fires at Leicourt. Uh, sorry, Leicourt. <laughs> I'm making the same mistake at Leicourt. Um, in the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries, but lie was this particular barn was incredibly sturdy and its massive size and carried on being used for the later farms. I mean, it's just a very useful building to have. So partly by luck, partly by its sturdy construction, it manages to survive. And even with the closure of the abbey at Pershore, when the farm passed into lay hands, there was still a need for large barns
0: for storing and threshing grain. Given the amount of time that it has survived, if we look at the building today, is- are there any clues that suggest that it's been altered over time?
3: No, surprisingly little alterations. There is um, a cider press in there that's been added later. There are things, uh, the kind of pigsties added to one side of it. So it's clearly been used for many centuries, but actually, its original structure it's absolutely outstanding. You know, these crux, basically, great big curving oak trees, each made from a single oak tree. Are sort of planted into a wall. It's what's called a base cruck construction. So they're founded into this low stone wall, like sandstone wall, round the sides, and then they arch into very elegantly to an apex above you. And there are ten of these bays, so nine pairs of these crucks running down the building. And it's just an outstanding example of English medieval carpentry. It's the largest cruck frame structure in Britain nine pairs of blades, 18 crook blades in all. And it allows us to study medieval carpentry techniques, you know, because wood normally rots. And to be able to go back to the 14th century and see how they built barns at that time and how they jointed them, how they pegged them, is just so amazing. It makes it one of the most important agricultural buildings of the medieval period in, in the country.
0: Is it still one of the most important agricultural buildings, at least locally in Worcestershire today, does it have any agricultural use?
3: No, it, it is just purely for people to enjoy the medieval architecture. It's been in guardianship of the state and looked after by English Heritage since 1990. And uh, it's been protected like that. But I believe it was still being used really as a, as a barn, at least a store, right up until the 1950s. There's some great photographs of it it's still there looking rather dilapidated at that time. And uh, thank goodness for the English heritage repairs in the 1980s that it was properly and fully restored and protected. Because, of course, once you get holes in, in that massive roof, the thing can actually fall apart quite, quite quickly. So now it's very well looked after.
0: If we head back to its original days when it would have been first put up in the 14th century, what sort of produce crops would we see inside it at harvest time?
3: Well, as Eleanor was talking about, these hand-cut hot corn sheaves of wheat and barley, sheaves would have been cut by hand out in the fields with sickles or later on scythes. You know, scythes of the ones you could stand up, a bit, bit like the man in Poldark, you know, <laughs> with these long, long handles of scything them. And then they were stacked in stooks out in the fields. And then these sheaves were brought in and stacked inside the barn. And there's an area in the middle for them to be threshed throughout the winter or throughout the year. And then that grain would be used to make bread, brew beer, be used for animal feed, and of course for sowing in the next year's crop. And the straw itself was a valuable commodity used for thatching, stuffing mattresses and animal bedding. And then, of course, once it had been animal bedding, it could then be mixed with all the dung and everything and put out back into the field. So nice recycling going on. So the barn really was the center of the whole agricultural, well, the agricultural operation as far as grain was concerned. Obviously, there were other buildings for, for stock rearing and things like that, but this was the main place for processing grain. All oh, right. I should say that actually the threshing floor is there to see in the middle, these flagstones. And of course, you opened the doors of the barn so that as you threw the straw, the, the sheaves up in the air and they scattered, the grain would be to- tossed and you could carry away the chaff and then and then collect, collect that grain and uh, take it away for
0: milling. I see. So around harvest time in the late 1340s potentially who's going to be working in the barn well because it's
3: a grange of pershore abbey the staff were generally probably lay brothers in other words people who were part of the monastic community but hadn't actually taken up holy orders so they weren't clerics they weren't part of the, uh, the clergy they couldn't say mass for example but they lived as part of the community even though they'd be actually working on the farm sometimes the grange might take on paid labourers but i imagine that most of them were lay brothers working there usually very hard working but they had the job for life really and it gave them security to be part of such a, a, a rich abbey so um although they probably lived quite frugally i imagine they at least had security for life for them and their family.
0: Yes, quite a simple life, but um, also busy at harvest time. So how would harvest time have been for those lay brothers and monks uh, at that time? Well,
3: you can imagine them in lines out in the fields, you know, with their uh, sickles or scythes, you know, collecting these and, and, and stacking them in the stoops, making sure we had nice weather for those periods so that it could be brought into the barn Well, loaded onto carts, because you'd have to remember that these fields that belong to them covered a vast area around Lye. And so these are all stacked onto carts and then brought to the barn and unloaded and stacked inside the barn. There's a lot of hard work there. I imagine the hardest work, actually, when you're out in lines in the fields, just cutting this stuff by hand, you know. Nowadays, we take it so much for granted that a tractor can pull a uh, you know, or, or a harvester can just go out in a field and collect it, collect a whole field's contents in an hour.
0: Yeah, um, I and mean, that must have taken <laughs> just, weeks.
3: <laughs> it, it would, would, certainly, certainly days with a large team of people. I mean, it, it is massive. You know, before mechanization, we have to remember how labor-intensive this was and how heavily populated the countryside was. You know, now much of our countryside, you know, people have moved to the towns and cities and. Uh, there were far more people living in tied cottages living in tiny houses out of the countryside that generally haven't survived very well, but you know a densely occupied landscape and if you walked out in the landscape at harvest time it would be incredibly busy there'd be people everywhere working on the harvest and of course people working for each other you know once someone had got their harvest in you'd be helping next door getting in the harvest before it rained you know so there'd sometimes be a great urgency and they were, of course, very vulnerable to droughts as we've had this summer and vulnerable to heavy rain and, and finding that the hay, or the, the straw and everything that you brought into the barns was still damp and would go mouldy inside. I mean, that was, a, that was a real danger. So it could be feast and famine. They didn't have that reliability. One of the reasons they have a big dry barn to keep the stuff in They had a head start on a lot of farmers who didn't have that kind of facility and who had to do their threshing out in the fields, for example. Here they had a nice dry place where they could uh, thresh the grain and then store it and send it to the mills, water mills or,
0: or windmills. Are there any records that suggest that the barn was quite successful over its time?
3: Well, I'm not familiar with the documentary evidence, but I think we can say that just from the size of it and the longevity of Pershore Abbey and its granges and the sheer wealth of this particular place shows that it was incredibly successful. It was clearly well-organised and very lucrative.
0: Did its purpose change over time as well? Was it repurposed for anything else? No,
3: no. Apart from that cider making, there's a lovely cider press at one end. I shouldn't call it a press. an apple crusher at one end of the barn. So when you're making cider, as Worcestershire and Herefordshire are famous for, then you uh, tip your apples into this circular trough and a great big stone wheel turns around the trough and crushes all the apples. And uh, you extract the juice into something else and, um, um, and the pulp, and then you press it you press what pulp is remaining, and then uh, extract the apple juice, and, and then uh, f- ferment it into cider. So that's in there, and of course those the little pig compartments, if you like, on along one side of the barn. But generally, the barn kept its uh, function for centuries.
0: Well, yes, exactly. How many centuries? How many, how many hundreds of years? Well, we're talking 700 years,
3: aren't we? 1344. I've got to do quickly <laughs> do my maths there. Uh, right up to 2022 is a very long time. And just amazing for such a, a massive timber structure to survive for so long. When it's an agricultural building you know you can understand it for churches and things that uh, venerated and cared for and curated for over centuries but you know a barn you think well how come it's been so carefully looked after but it's just a very sturdy construction and they kept the roof repaired which is the most important thing
0: absolutely yes because otherwise you uh, really get water dripping in and causing trouble on those uh, timber structures But given the barn's age and condition, are there any sort of special historic titles that have been bestowed upon it? Well, surprisingly late, actually, that it wasn't scheduled as a monument
3: until 1988, but it actually was listed in 1981. But still, both of those are quite recent dates. And then taken into State Guardianship in 1990. I think this reflects um, how, you know, from from when scheduling and listing started, you know, late 19th and early 20th century, that generally people favoured churches and examples of architecture that were classic pieces of architecture, you know, things that deserved it, you know, religious buildings and and things like that, and castles. But agricultural buildings were really the kind of Cinderella, actually, that um, nobody really appreciated the importance of agriculture and vernacular buildings until... The sort of 70s and 80s, I mean, medieval archaeology didn't really come of age in this country until the 1970s. You know, before that, people used to just dig through medieval remains to get to the Roman remains, you know, (laughs) archaeologists and people. So really, we have, in the last 50 years, become much more aware of our very important medieval past and have sought to preserve it. And uh, I still find it surprising that it wasn't listed or scheduled until the 1980s. But thank goodness it has been. Now that it's in the guardianship of the state, and we as English Heritage Trust look after it, hopefully it'll be permanently preserved forever.
0: So if people are interested in visiting Lycourt Barn in Worcestershire, how do they go about visiting the property?
3: Well, it's easy. It's a a free site. You can visit any time during normal daylight hours. And yeah, you you park actually. It's not very easy to park, but um, you can park on the roadside nearby and walk through the past the more recent cottages and houses and buildings there, which are all private property, and then you walk into the space that Lycourt Barn sits in. And this is where you're confronted with this, you know, fantastic elevation of this this tile roof. But step inside and touch. I think that's one of the important things. Just feel those timbers and look closely at how they are fitted together and how a cruck construction like this works. This is the largest construction that survives in the whole country. You know, just appreciate its size and look up. And you'll see that no nails are used in the whole thing. It's just purely joints and pegs. It's just a beautiful piece of carpentry. And you'll notice the earthen floor, the rammed earth floor, the, the flagstones where the uh, threshing floor is, and that lovely more recent cider press that's uh, the, up the end of the barn. And if you want to fall asleep, you can count the tiles on the roof, (laughs) just from from outside. There are just so many of these red tiles that cover it. It's just stunning. It's very difficult to put it across, actually, how stunning it is. I, I think the nearest comparison really is that it's a cathedral to agriculture, you know, just stepping inside and looking up to this vast roof.
0: Yes, and I think with its sort of religious ties, that relationship to the abbot of the missing manor, that's a very apt description, actually. Yes,
3: indeed. And, and a medieval working life. And I think it's also worth uh, just uh, tra- traveling a few miles to Pershore Abbey or what's left of it. And the core of it actually survives very well because the parish of Pershore actually, rather than allowing the church to be demolished, as most abbeys and cathedrals were demolished, this particular one was rescued by the parish and they petitioned and purchased this to be their own parish church. So it still survives and is, is well worth visiting. So that was the real home, the core of this incredible medieval enterprise that owned the Grange Farm at Lycord Barn.
0: So just to wrap up both properties that we've been talking about, Broadsworth Hall in South Yorkshire and Lycourt Barn in Worcestershire, obviously they're just two places where harvest time was a really important time for people living near them. But um, I suppose in some respects we're sort of looking at a period now in, in our own recent history with this very hot summer where you really have to appreciate any rainfall that you get and there's a really delicate balance between sunshine and rain and good crops and bad harvests. And I suppose that's something that we should all consider as we sort of go into this autumn and winter, really, that um, nature is quite fragile.
3: Yes, we're so insulated from this now with mechanisation, with food supply chains and having coal stores and dry warehouses and, and being able to process crops speedily and bring them in when, the, when it's dry. We're so protected these days. Thank goodness it gives us a reliability of food supply. But when you go back to medieval times, the struggle really, it wasn't so much about survival, but you had this sort of feast and famine. So there were times that when you were doing really well, but you were vulnerable to droughts or to heavy rain and things like that when you could lose your whole crop. I mean, I suppose with the drought this year, we're seeing that there is the danger that people are losing their crops.
0: Um, And certainly due to to wildfire as well, potentially. Yes,
3: that could be another problem indeed. I mean, I expect that happened in medieval times considerably, although people didn't have their barbecues and they didn't leave glass bottles around. (laughs) But I suppose if there was a wildfire then, they had less ability to control it than we would now. Yeah, they were very much more vulnerable than us. And I think when you look back to medieval times, it was that cooperation, by cooperating in large numbers, that's what ensured their future. And it's the lesson I've always found in archaeology, from earliest prehistory, that actually the reason that we are a successful species is that we cooperate so incredibly we are just a, quite a small animal, animal compared with a lot of animals. But, you know, we're, we're not very strong as animals, but we can communicate. We have language and we can work together as teams. And that's what gives us our resilience. And that's what's made us the most successful species in the world. I mean, to our detriment, really. But, um, but that's basically how it worked in medieval times, that people had to work together on a large scale to ensure their future.
0: Any final thoughts from you on that as well, Eleanor?
1: Yes, I agree. And it's like Wynne was saying, there's lots of parallels between farming, agriculture and how we approached it in the past and kind of comparisons you could make today and particularly thinking about what we were discussing at Broadsworth in the Second World War. And obviously, we still have war in Europe, in Ukraine at the moment. And we've heard recently on the news that some of the first Ukraine grain crops have just started exiting via sea so it's still the same comparisons as to how war second world war or wars that still happen now can really affect the harvest and it is like win said a lot of different people and different groups working together to be able to make that still happen because we all obviously rely on our food production to keep us going
0: Well, this has been a really interesting chat, so thank you very much both for your time talking us through the harvest across the centuries, Lycourt Barn in Worcestershire and Broadsworth Hall in South Yorkshire near Doncaster.
3: Thanks ever so much, Giles. That
0: was fun. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week we'll profile a man whose death often overshadows his life. King Harold Godwinson. Harold clearly has enough people stood around in that chamber at Westminster and enough powerful people to say, fair enough, it's your turn in the big chair. So he may just kind of think, well, this is just a Duke of Normandy. I mean, what's he going to do? Thanks for listening. See you next time.